Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to today's Startup Equity Matters. I have Matt Seacrest with me today. Hey, Matt. Hey. Uh, Matt's an expert in many things relating to startup law, and today we're going to cover stock options, the basics, I suppose, but also what we're going to do is not just do all the technical stuff. We're definitely going to give you some technical insights because it's important, but we're going to try and simplify and streamline that, try and give you the answers as much as we can. Hey, Matt. Hey. Look, so welcome. Um, Thanks for joining. Uh, Startup Equity Matters is a podcast for founders and their teams to help them create more value from their equity. You need to use your equity for raising and, and building teams. And I know as a founder myself, I was just almost constantly reading a legal document or sending and signing something. And, you know, it was a real headache. So this whole podcast is about really making your life a lot easier. So Thanks, Matt, for joining us today. Would you mind just opening up, telling us a little bit about yourself and your firm and what you're specializing in? Sure. Happy. Thanks for having me on today. Again, my name is Matt Seacrest. I'm with uh, Taft Law. We're a firm of a little over 800 attorneys. We represent uh, startups through large publicly traded companies. I'm an employee benefits attorney. So what I focus on is basically how employees get paid. So one aspect of my job is help uh, companies with their equity incentive plans. I also help companies with their retirement programs and their health insurance programs that they offer to their employees. Been working with Cake for, say, almost going on, maybe going on three years now. It's been a great relationship trying to help everyone understand just how option plans work. And hopefully we can kind of, again, like Jason said, simplify some things for folks. No, it's been great working with you. Um, your energy for startups and I guess simplifying, streamlining things has been been great for us. And you've helped us learn a lot about the US over the years as we've been getting set up over there. So thanks for that. All right. Well, look, let's let's jump into um, what is a stock option. And there's two main types that, that sort of startups are using, ISO and NSO. So let's dig into that a little bit. And, you know, let's try and help people understand, you know, when they would use an ISO, when they would use an NSO. And I think we're going to have a little secret for everyone what the best one is. If you're not going to say it, I'm going to say it at some point along the way, because I reckon there's a clear winner there for most startups. Yeah. So when I get a startup client that comes to me and say, hey, Matt, I want to put an equity incentive plan in place. And basically, we're going to go over the types of options. But generally, one of my first questions is, do you want employees to own your shares? That's one of the very first questions, because... The tax treatment of ISOs, the incentive stock options, the statutory, the qualified options, those require you to meet these holding period rules, which means you've got an employee that actually has to become a shareholder and own the shares. If you don't want your employee to own the shares, for example, say you have an equity plan that grants stock options, and then basically everyone is, all the um, people who own the, hold the awards are essentially cashed out on an exit event when the company's sold, then an ISO really doesn't, you don't really get the tax benefits of an ISO because you're actually not, they're not, they're, you're not meeting the holding period. Employees aren't really holding the shares for that period. So there's really, again, two types. I first start with, do you want employees to be owners of the company? Do you want them on your cap table? You, yeah. From my perspective, Matt, you know, I don't know any founder that's thinking how I really want, the reason I'm giving options to my team is so that they own shares. I mean, that's not really where people are thinking in startup land. It's all about high growth, 
exits, mm-hmm. M&A, IPO, that kind of thing, which is yep. which is all about the exit, the liquidity event. So you're much more trying to align the ownership structure of the incentive plan to this exit opportunity, yeah? Exactly. So, And that's why most startups use non-qualified stock options, the other one. NSO, so, right, with, NSO. NSO, so much yeah. More flexible. Much more flexible. So an NSO, you can grant it to an employee, an independent contractor. So if you have someone coming in doing tech work, you have an IT person coming in setting up your systems, your firewall, and you want to pay them with an option, you can pay them with a not an NSO. An ISO can only be granted to an employee. So there's a that's like one restriction. So an NSO is a lot more flexibility for especially for startups when you know cash might not always be available to pay your bills. So an NSO basically is an option. It gives you a a right to purchase the stock in the future for an exercise price. In the US, we have this Internal Revenue Code Section 409A that we'll kind of mention that a few times here today, I'm sure. Under 409A, the exercise price of an option has to be equal to or greater than the fair market value of a share on the data grant. So if I grant you like one option to purchase one share and that share price at the time of the option is $10 per share, that exercise price has to be $10 or more, okay? So as long as you do that, you're gonna comply with 409A. And then now, later on- Let me te- jump in quick, Mac, because yeah. like this is super technical. I know we're simplifying it a lot, but I'm gonna try and help simplify this. I hope I'm actually helping, but let's try. So. For me, with the, in the life of an option, there's kind of four points. There's the granting point, which is the point where, hey, the company's sending the offer letter and we're doing the agreement and you know we're granting the option to the employee or contractor, whoever it is. And the next point is vesting. The next point is exercising. And then the next point after that, you know, will be exiting. And they can all, you know, some of those things can happen at the same time, but there's sort of four main sort of moments in the life cycle of the option and becoming shares and getting the cash, getting the liquidity. So what we're talking about here is at the point of granting, you must do the 409A, which establishes the exercise price, which then gets paid at that third point, which is the exercise point, right? So it's like, it's a little bit confusing. So we're talking about the first bit and you have to do the 409A so that you don't make a mistake on setting the wrong exercise price. And if you do set the wrong exercise price, you create massive tax problems for both the company and the employee, or is it mainly just the employee that has the problem? So the thing with 409A is, unlike a lot of US and other country tax code provisions, the penalty is actually on the employee, the participant, versus like most of these penalties we, we talk about in the tax world are all on the company, the employer. But under 409A, if you violate those rules, it's actually a 20% excise tax penalty payable by the employee. So they might have been given, for argument's sake, you know, $20,000 worth of equity as when they get it granted and the company gets audited before they've been paid any money. The employee hasn't been paid any money yet. They haven't had their exit. And then they get yep. found to be in breach of 409A. And then the employee then what gets a tax bill of 20% of whatever options they've been given. Whatever the value is. And you do that every year it can add up really fast because there's also interest penalties that apply too. Because a lot of times when these options are granted, people don't know, they don't think about, that's one of the biggest issues for startups is getting a good valuation. 
Because yeah. if you don't get a good valuation, that comes up in a couple different ways. One is, you know, you have the risk of an IRS audit and people aren't filing their taxes right because the 409A violation is a yearly thing. So each year you have to pay the tax and the penalties. But then later on, you also have your exit events for the company. So when you have someone doing due diligence, like the mat for the buyer side, he's going to look at, okay, did you get a good valuation? And if not, he's going to say, did you company report this properly to the IRS? And that could be additional headaches when you're actually going for the sale of the company later on. So well, it used to be that these 409As were extremely expensive and complicated, but most of the good cap table providers and law firms will have like a nice, reasonably simple, not, not mega simple, but it's much simpler, much more affordable, you know, including cake. We have that, you know, built in and I'm mm-hmm. sure you have partners for that. So look, it's not that hard anymore. You've got to get the 409A. Let's make sure we massively put yeah. a big tick on that. So like, all right, so we're doing our, our grant, we're getting our 409A, we're making sure we're correctly setting the exercise price. Awesome. Thanks for highlighting that. That's mega important. So where were we? So we're talking about MSOs and why they're great yep. and why yep. they're flexible and why they're probably the preference for a lot of startups, yeah. I suppose. Unless when when were we saying we would use an ISO? I suppose you're saying it's like if you're working with employees and you want them to be shareholders down the track. So you'd rather have them convert and become a shareholder and and stay with you over the medium term. And it's not necessarily about like a liquidity event, then you probably go for the ISO. Yeah. So the main difference is, so in both of them, you have to have a good valuation for your data grant. You have a good exercise price, good foreign and evaluation. Okay. And then there's the event that as far as the tax treatment, that's when you actually exercise the options. Okay. The vesting is not a, a tax event. It's nothing special. It's just, okay, the individual award holder, they actually own something at that point. They own the right to exercise and receive shares for the payment of the exercise price. Yeah. When that happens in an NSO, say, for example, the value of the shares are $20 per share and you set your exercise price at $5. In an NSO, that $15 difference for your employees is, is wages. It's subject to income tax and employment taxes. And then for your self-employed, if you have paid you like your IT person to cut with an option, that self-employment income they have to report and, and pay taxes on. So that's they, that they have to pay tax on that difference. So that's yeah. an exercise. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's talk through this again. So this is great stuff. I'm going to try and simplify it or just talk it over. So for both ISO and NSO, when the company grants to the employee or contractor, there's no tax payable under both as long as you get the right 409A and you do the valuation correctly with the exercise price. Similarly with vesting, which is the next step, there's no tax payable on, under both if you know there hasn't been an audit and you haven't had an issue with your valuation. But with an NSO at exercise, there is a taxable event, which is the difference between the fair market value and the exercise price. Okay, well, this is super interesting and i think everybody should know this so i'm a huge advocate for having the longest possible exercise period when you grant an option Mm -hmm. but there are some rules around this and but it's different for iso and nso i think as well so it's probably worth us talking about this so from my understanding you know and i've been doing this for years now and but every country's a bit different but 
There's only really two reasons, in my opinion, or there's potentially three, but two main ones, why an employer or contractor would want to exercise their options. The first one is that they want to participate in an exit event, you know, and you can only really participate in an exit event if you've converted from an option to a stock or a share, and then you you get your liquidity as part of that transaction. The second one is you want to participate in dividends and option holders don't get dividends. You have to be yep. a stock, you know, shareholder, stockholder to get your dividend. And then the third one is if you want to vote, because normally an option holder wouldn't have any voting rights. But if you are a shareholder, then you do get your voting rights. And the third one, I think, is not that important because the amount of vote you have is normally so tiny, you're not yep. going to influence any vote anyway. So it's really to get access to your cash, which is what you want out of your stock option plan, you need to exercise. So my what I always say to founders is you want to exercise at the point of the exit or unless the mm-hmm. dividend is significant because quite often you've got this big tax bill to pay um, to get your dividend and that may create like a pretty serious issue for you uh, that, where the tax bill is larger than the dividend. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, trying to align exercise to exit you know, and mm-hmm. the tax payments around ISO and NSO at that exercise point. Yeah, most startups design their equity plan so that it's only exercisable on a, on a change control sale of the company. And that kind of makes sense for the employee too, because you think about it, okay, you've got, if I'm an employee of a startup and I exercise this option, okay, now I'm a shareholder, I own shares, but it's an illiquid asset. Like I can't go and sell these shares on the open market. It's not publicly traded stock. And the stock that I receive is subject to transfer restrictions. So I can't just go to my neighbors, knock on the door and say, hey, I've got these shares of this X company. Will you pay me $20 for it? And you can't do that because these are non-publicly traded shares. And you're going to be subject to a, um, a share restrict transfer restriction agreement when you exercise. So you have this piece of paper that is worth something, but you can never really recognize it until a good transfer event happens. In the startup world, the real transfer event is the sale of the company. You know, So that's one of the, probably the primary reason I would say most startups design these plans so that they're only, the option's only exercisable on a, on a change of control. And again, it makes sense for both parties because you, know, mm-hmm. you got you know, founders that don't want to have 50 different shareholders to kind of respond to, invite to their annual meeting and everything. And then you also got to- every single document. You got to go around the whole world. (laughs) Yeah. And then you got to worry about, okay, do I have to give financial disclosures to this shareholder that owns like one share out of the thousand shares or 10,000 shares? You know, it's just cleaner, honestly, to to have it exercisable on a change of control. In NSO, when you're talking about exercise periods, you know, you got to be mindful of state law and your plan design, but generally you can have a long of an exercise period as you want versus an ISO that has a bunch of restrictions. Like, for example, you can't have longer than 10 years for an exercise period. If someone quits and they're no longer an employee, they have 90 days, three months to exercise or they forfeit the options versus you know, with an NSO, you could have it that people keep their options and they just stay out there while they're not working for the company. So it's a lot more flexibility than NSO. I think it's critical personally. I mean, everyone's going to have a different opinion and I'm still learning, but 
you know, you work for a company for several years and you earn options via vesting and that's part of your remuneration sometimes, but then you get to the end and you have to pay your own cash out to can exercise them. And, you know, it's so hard to save cash and you might need it for a house deposit or, you know, your kids college, and then you have to take it and, and put it into the company that you just worked for and earned options. I, um, like, I don't understand that from an asset allocation perspective yeah. and a risk management perspective as a, a founder. And a, anyway, so I don't really get that. I think it's tough on the employee to have to do that, especially if there's a big gap between there could be a reasonable size exercise payment. And then plus there could be a tax component to that as well. Or did we say that mm-hmm. that was, yeah, there could be a tax component. That was only on the NSO. So at least in that case, there isn't a tax component. So yeah, it's just the exercise payment. But um, yeah, well, the exercise payment here in the U.S. we have this concept as a cashless exercise, oh, and yeah. that happens a lot in these sale transactions. Where basically we draft the purchase agreement that we're going to treat every option that's vested as exercise. We're just give the option holder a cash payment, so there's no out the door as far as I have to get a loan to pay my exercise price. So we have a cashless op exercise. That's cool. Talk me through that a little bit. So does the company fund that or how does that get funded then? Well, it's usually funded out of basically, you can fund it out of the sales proceeds. So the company, when they sell, they're getting this big chunk of money from the potential buyer. Okay. Um, it could so just be put it on pre- the balance sheet. The company just mm-hmm. pops it on the balance sheet as like a, mm-hmm. like an, it's like an exit liability. So it's almost probably mm-hmm. not even on the balance sheet. I don't know. We're not accountants here. I'm an accountant, but you know, yeah. like... It could be yeah, off, an off-balance sheet liability, like exit liability, because I suppose it's not even required until exit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and then there's... So that gets into accounting rules, which I'm not an yeah, accountant yeah. to. Generally, like, we have to like list vested options and stuff. Again, there's a lot of accountant, but okay. we could do it that way. Or it could be like a pre-closing liability where the company just uses cash off its balance sheet to cash out everybody. And then what happens is with that cash payment, that cash payment per share, it's used to pay the exercise price and it's also used to pay any tax liability too. So end of the day, the employee net nets what the cash would be for those, the cash value of those shares minus the exercise price and minus the taxes. Okay. Well, that seems really fair. You know, you're an employee, you have an ISO, you do your time, you can exercise with a non-cash exercise. And then you know, the company just maintains that that liability, you know, through the exit. Yeah, cool. Okay. That's awesome. And then with the NSO, similarly, you know, you'd be looking to have as long an exercise period as possible. There's no rules around the exercise period there. I have heard some founders, you know, wanting to have, you know, one, two, three year exercise periods. Oh, lights have gone out for Matt. <laughs> You've got to be a bit more dynamic, Matt. Yeah. It has like a motion thing in this room. It does the same thing in my, this isn't my office. It says the same thing downstairs, but. Uh, oh, we're yeah, going to be yeah. energy conscious. So I think that's. A yeah, good I got <laughs> I to gotta be more energetic in these discussions to start jiving. We're going to have a movement element from now on. You cool. So now let's regular... the NSO on exercise. So if people still getting it, you've got the grant, which is sort of a, you get like, there's even an earlier bit. So you sign your remuneration and your remuneration sort of says, hey, I'm going to get some cash every month or every fortnight and I'm going to get some equity. Then you get an employment contract, which Matt could handle, you know, and then, but you still need to sign like an option grant, which Kate would handle or your cap table provider would handle. 
So that's yeah. like, you know, a separate document. So you sign two documents to make sure you've got your remuneration to get your cash and your equity. That's kind of the, the granting element. Then you've got your vesting. Vesting's the bit where you kind of earn your options, right, Matt? So that's like 12-month cliff, four-year vesting. Everybody kind of mm-hmm. gets that bit, I think. That's pretty straightforward. You can have milestone-based vesting as well, which is kind of earning your options based on one particular outcome. So that's your vesting. That's stage two. And then stage three is the exercise, and we've just been talking about that how it works for ISO, NSO, and then stage four is kind of like the exit where there's the change of ownership as you sort of described it, where, you know, is there anything we should talk to there or that people should know about any differences between ISO and NSO? We have talked a little bit about that already, but... Yeah, not- so I kind of hinted about the ISO, the incentive stock options that you have to meet these holding period rules. So like how I said about every... The benefit of an ISO compared to an NSO. An NSO, the difference between your fair market value and exercise price is taxable wages. Okay. But if you have an ISO, one an exercise, that difference is not taxable wages. It's not subject to income tax or employment taxes on exercise. And then if you sell it later on and you're within the holding period, the difference between the ultimate sales price minus the exercise price you paid that's going to be long-term capital gain. So long-term capital gain, it has basically half the tax rate as an ordinary income, which you'd that have in the NSO. But, but again, you've got to hold these shares. So yeah. if you think about, again, you're exercising, you don't have publicly traded stock. So hmm. it doesn't, always makes sense and you're probably not going to get it like even though on paper that looks good let's pay half tax but in reality you're not going to exercise until exit so then you haven't held it long enough Mm -hmm. to get the discount okay cool exactly so you're not going to get that tax benefit and typically in a startup one last thing i wanted to cover before we sort of move on a little bit to some cool stuff that you've seen and just just like jam on the space in general a little bit you know get out of the technical elements but yeah you do hear about people exercising their options earlier to minimize their tax bill. And I suppose in this case, we're probably talking NSOs. My mind, I'm thinking what people are probably doing is they're saying, hey, well, if I've got, say, a three-year exercise period, which some plans would have, we're probably not going to have a full exit in that three years. So I'm going to have to exercise before the exit. And I want to exercise as soon as possible because I think that the fair market value of the company is as close to my exercise price as possible. So I'm going to have the smallest taxable income. And I don't want to exercise in one or two years' time because if the company keeps going up in value, when I exercise, I'm going to have a bigger tax bill. Am I in the right space to sort of explain how that might work? Yeah. So you see that sometimes. Those get like really complicated plans. So it's really like a plan within a plan. Right. So... It's basically you're doing an early exercise and you're getting what's called restricted stock. So that's stock that's subject to a vesting schedule. And you have to do different tax filings for that as well to kind of get the tax benefit. It really, I used to see that sometimes here and there, but I'm seeing less and less of that because it's just, again, it's like a plan within a plan. So it's uh, like a lot of times when you have a startup, they want to incentivize employees and folks to think this is like real value. And the more detail, the more complications you add to it, it becomes less of incentive, even though it might be I love that. an incentive, even though it might be better off, 
it's just, I mean, if you don't describe things in a way that people can understand, it actually can be a disincentive. Oh, and, I love that. I, can, yeah. I say that all the time. Yeah. It's so caught up in the legal, technical, financial element. And, and mm-hmm. when you explain it to a regular person, they're just like, what? I don't understand anything you just said. I just want to know I'm part of this plan. And if we all win together, I'm going to get like a good outcome. I want to be able to understand it. I don't want to have a tax yeah. bill. You know, like the simpler is way better in this space. That's so, so cool to hear you say that. Well, let's double down on that just to finish this section. So what I got out of all this is that startups should use MSO and have a long exercise period and give everyone the same thing and have a really nice, simple plan so that people don't have a tax problem and that, you know, when we get down the track and we all win, everybody gets a piece of the cake. <laughs> That's my summary exactly. for that. Piece uh, of the cake. Piece. Love it. <laughs> Awesome. Look, thanks. Look, everyone, I hope we did enough technical stuff there because it is a very technical space. We want you to understand enough, but also kind of understand how to just get this done well, not get too caught up in the jargon and solve this complicated problem simply and quickly for you, but also for your team. You know, we want equity to be something that motivates your team and helps you build a great culture. And you don't want you or your team constantly sitting in their accountant lawyer's office trying to work out what the hell is going on because that's very demotivating. And thank you, Matt, for bringing that up. That's amazing of you and a testament to why we partner. So let's go now and dig into oh something cool that's happening at the moment. Well, something not cool that's happening at the moment, but something that's current is that unfortunately, you know, capital markets are much more difficult than they were in 2021. And what happens in these more difficult years is that valuation of companies come down. Mm-hmm. I think I'm, you know, breaking any news to anyone that unfortunately startup valuations have come down 50 to 70% in those later rounds. Seed stage looks to be pretty good, but you know, companies that raised at 20, 50, 100 times rev having a really hard time matching those valuations in the current market. And that actually creates big issues for ordinary and stock options, Matt. So let's dig into that a little bit, try and help people understand that and how they can protect themselves, uh, how that we can continue to create value from stock options through these difficult mm-hmm. periods, you know, because I think it's super interesting and it's the type of thing we want to help people understand, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that situation, say, we call them here in the US as underwater stock options. So these are stock options that have become worthless. You set the exercise price we talked about at one value and now things have kind of gone not the way we want them to go. So like your $10 exercise price, now your company is worth $8. So it's underwater. The option's not really worth anything to employees. I mean, there's always the potential the company's going to grow and they're going to be able to exercise. But again, you want these things to be motivating to employees. You want them to see the real value and get excited for what they're doing at the company and the potential of this exit event later on. So, you know, the simplest way that we kind of approach these things is we basically do a cancellation and a grant of new option. Basically what we do is we get a new 409A valuation. We look at how many options that we've granted an individual and we try to figure out, okay, this individual has been around for a long time. We really want to motivate them and, Maybe if they've gotten like five options right now, 
because things haven't gone as well, we'll give them a new option for eight. We'll give them eight new options instead of uh, to replace their five. And the eight will be at the new valuation. So that way they can kind of still see the growth and they don't feel like they're losing out on anything. That's the typical way I kind of handle this. It's the cleanest. There used to be back in the day, people started looking at uh, exchange programs and everything, but that triggered all kind of 409A issues. So just to keep things simple, kind of our theme here, typically what I recommend is you just cancel the option and then you grant a new option. You just figure out some kind of ratio and, and give them more options than they had before. Love it. I love it. Every late stage founder should be looking at this, right? Because you've got your team there. They're getting distracted. They think their equity is underwater. That you potentially haven't even communicated to them what you think the current valuation is versus what it was and, and where they're at. You know, like be communicating that, keep them up to date, be on the front foot. Potentially, you know, I think the average in the US, 18% of your stock is, is in your stock option plan. So a huge amount of your company's stock is out there with these great people that have helped you build this company. So take the time, take the effort, go through this process cancel, renew, it's much more likely you're going to have a motivated uh, workforce and, you know, in these tough times and coming out of these tough times, you know, companies with the best teams, most motivated teams um, are going to win, you know, on the bounce back. So awesome. Thanks for covering that. Anything else on that one, Matt? Yeah, I would just add on that. Like you hit the nail on the head. It's like any employee benefit, a stock option, equity grants, you got to keep stuff fresh. You got to keep it top of mind to people. So I see companies all the time where they've granted stock options in one year, three, five, seven years pass, and no one's mentioned the stock Crazy. option pl- program at all. And Crazy. employees just forget about this. Think about so, the company. The company's worth 20 million, 50 million, 100 million. Yeah. So 20% of that is just out there and mm-hmm. not working for you. It's such yeah. a huge cost to the company that just sort of goes unnoticed. So for us, it's always got to be the legal team, the finance team, and the people team connected to the leadership. So it's got to start at the top. So the culture and strategy has to have this built in. And then, you know, these three cross-functional teams need to work together to make sure that that this stuff's working. It can't just be sitting in the finance manager's spreadsheet or, you know, the, the legal counsel is sort of making sure the contracts are up to date. You know, I think when these things work well, those three teams are working together and it can be really wonderful drive for the company. It should be part of your annual discussion with employees. Just say, hey, you know, we've granted you these many options at exercise price. Give them a statement, like go on cake and just print out a statement for them and an email to them. You know, just give them something to see in front of them that motivates them. Just don't reference their stock option program. Let them see numbers. People love numbers. Otherwise, they're scared. It's worse than good. It's scary for them, you know, so flip it around and we advocate, talk to them in the all hands, whether it's monthly or quarterly, like they're investors, you know, like you give your investors updates, like help your team understand they are investors in your company and then you can really make these discussions really positive. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Let's sort of wrap up. I think we touched on something that you sort of see as the biggest fuck up already, but let's just double down on that. We like to do, you know, like a little bit of a close segment. So today we're going to do biggest fuck ups with Matt. What's the biggest thing people do wrong to cause themselves and their their team's problems, Matt? Oh, there's a lot of stuff that could happen. Uh, I think we <laughs> I think we beat the four and an A issue to death. Okay, yeah, we did. 
But that's what you were going to say, right? That's the biggest one. Well, what's the next biggest issue? There's so many ones. So another one that I see with startups sometimes with your award agreement and your your exercise notice, you don't have the employee, the person exercising, agree to a, a share restriction agreement. So you need to make sure those shares are actually restricted. I've seen that happen where they don't have any kind of legends on their shares. And they're just like, people think these shares are, are transferable, which as a private company, you know, that gets into securities laws issues and you're violating securities laws because you are you can't really freely exchange these in the public. You can't go ne- knock on your neighbor's door and sell them. So you want to make sure you have good restrictions on your offer documents. Another thing is people forget that going back to securities laws there, there's the federal securities laws in the US, the Securities and Exchange Commission that apply to publicly traded companies. But States have securities laws too that you have to worry about, like California. California is one of those states, or California is a big state as far as uh, employee protection, individual citizen protection. So, yeah, um, so even you need to make sure you comply with those state laws. So, even though you're, say, probably Delaware, or you might be Delaware, so you think, hey, I'm abiding by the Delaware laws where my company is domiciled. Yeah. But if you're issuing stock options in, say, the state of California, there could be some additional obligations. Yeah, really interesting insight. Yeah. So like in California, you have to have provisions as far as exercisability of your options. There's state laws for that. There's state laws as far as access to records and stuff. So you have to make sure you actually comply with these state laws. So those are awesome. on top of the four and an A, I thought maybe I'd just add something else because I could say four and an A all day long. That's a cool one. That's a cool one. Okay, we're a big believer in trying to help our customers handle both sides because there's the stuff the company has to do wherever it's based. And then there's also stuff you're going to do wherever your employees are based. We've got a global product as well. And, you know, that creates even more complexity. And I know you're helping us on that front too, Matt, with TAF. So, hey, look, everyone, we better wrap it up. I don't want to sort of keep Matt too long. I think we did a great job of simplifying things. It is an incredibly complex area. And our mission with Startup Equity Matters is to simplify and streamline things. It's obviously our mission at Cake as well. We love working with Matt because he really is helping us go on this journey of seeing through all the complexity and trying to say, hey, look, what's the best fit? How do we help people stay out of the weeds on this stuff and actually just build our companies and have great relationships with our, you know, with our team? So I think we did that today. We definitely tried. Thanks for joining us everyone thanks for joining us matt your founder knowledge i'm very grateful so yeah that's it for me for today thanks everyone thanks matt ciao